Thank you all for coming. Today is a historic day. At this very moment, there's a possibility that the United States will elect an African-American as president. I'm sure there was a great hesitation for some people to come tonight because it's riveting to watch the election. If anyone's cell phone rings and there's a text message, <laughs> tell us who won. <laughs> As you may know, I'm going to be speaking a little bit about my journey. Before I do, I would like to begin by asking that we take a moment to make dedications. Dedications to loved ones who are in need of support or blessing, to those that are dear and near to us, or dear and far from us, or perhaps dear and passed away. And we would like to express gratitude and love for them, that we cherish them. This is a good moment for us to just pause and remember them here. Also, if you have any questions, and you could write down your question, I hope we'll have a bit of time for that at the end. Let's just pause for a minute. In particular, I'd like to make a dedication to all who helped to make this event happen with so much determination and with not many resources, just the willingness, the effort, the belief that this was something important to them and they wanted to see it happen. And they didn't even know me. That was very touching. So let's just pause in silence for a couple of moments. If you know how to meditate, then you can watch your breath or watch your mind or watch the empty space and feel the body. Send out rays of loving kindness in the directions of all the beings we've mentioned and all those in your hearts and all beings everywhere, especially our neighbors to the south. Sharing blessings is a, a beautiful thing to do. Some of us may come from different religions, but we're all faced with the same human journey. And as a young child, I was brought up in a very orthodox Jewish family. My parents both lived through the pain of the Holocaust. I was aware, as many of us who are children of survivors, I was quite well aware of their pain from a young age. In fact, my bedtime stories that my father used to tell me were about his experiences during the war. After he would leave my room, I used to have nightmares that uh, there were soldiers coming to get me and they were hiding under my bed. I used to fight with them. I'd imagine that they'd come out and they'd grab me. You know how children make things into a game. It certainly instilled me with fear. Fear of being hated. Fear of being 
diminished just because I was of a certain religious faith. And as a small person, that, that can be very devastating. Then growing up, I had a lot of love and a lot of joy in the family in spite of that because of the, the beauty of the ritual and the traditions. I was a very curious child. One day, I was walking with my mother in Montreal on the street and I saw a Catholic nun coming. I didn't know what it was. I was holding my mother's hand. As the nun passed us, I just pulled away from my mother and started following her. I was just so intrigued. And my mother pulled me back. I said, what was that? And she said, that was a nun. <laughs> that was very fascinating for me. I think in, in the Buddhist tradition, we have this idea about karma and this has become a popular word I think it's in the dictionary now karma is the law of cause and effect and is very much to do with the intention in the mind karma also refers to what we as human beings bring into this life and even if you don't believe in past lives in Judaism there is this kind of tenet which is not something that's part of the popular transmission of the Jewish culture. And I only found out about it as an adult. As karma gets transmitted from before, from another life, whatever it is, each of us brings something with us. It's part of the package that we have to purify. So I always believed that I had been a nun before but in the Jewish tradition there was no monastic form so there was no way for me to express this and it took me many many years to get around the conventions of Judaism to arrive at a place where I found my calling and it so happened that that involved leaving my country or Canada leaving my my roots and traveling to India as so many people did during the 60s and early 70s and it was in India I met a teacher I had already been meditating and I practiced there and took instruction from him and one day when I was meditating and chanting in the middle of the temple at night the candles were lit in the shrine. I had this image of my grandfather, who I was very close to as a child. He was very religious. I used to go to shul with him to the synagogue and pray regularly. When he passed away, I missed him very much because he was the only grandparent that I had known. But suddenly, there in this temple in India, I had the experience of my grandfather hovering over me and praying with me. I was in a temple in India far from my roots, far from my, my culture. I had no idea that somehow I would be able to string those two things together. The yogic type of practices that I was learning, my teacher was 
teaching me about meditation, not about specific religious rituals or conventions. That was the main thing. And that was something so foreign to what I had grown up and, and learned, what I'd been brought up to, to practice as a Jew. Suddenly I had this feeling in my heart that I understood what it, mean, what it meant to be Yehudi, Yehudiah. Yehudi is the Hebrew word for Jew, Jewish. Ivri is the other one, the boundary crosser. And I suddenly felt, I know what it means now. That was very startling to me because I didn't realize that I would learn that in such a foreign context. What did it actually mean? And what it meant to me was that I was able to stand in the presence of holiness with my grandfather participating in his own way and give thanks. The word Yehudi comes from the root of the word Toda or thanksgiving. As some of you may know, Todarabas, thank you very much. So that was a, a startling thing for me to realize. And from then on, I felt very comfortable in, this, in doing this work of meditation. My parents were very open to my journey, and that was a great help. Wherever I went and wherever I traveled, whatever practice I did, I always wrote to them and shared it with them. They never rejected what I was doing. This was very encouraging to me. I continued to practice meditation for many years, and eventually I found myself working in the field of nutrition and accepting a job in Nepal so that I could be close to my teacher in India. I'd remained very, very closely affiliated with him over a 12-year period in spite of traveling to different countries and working in, in my field. It so happened that I met a Buddhist monk who became my teacher in Nepal and eventually I found myself in Burma and during a very long retreat I took the robe of a Buddhist nun and then I came back to the West completely on faith when I took robes it was because I realized that there was nothing in the world that appealed to me anymore it wasn't a rejection I had a very successful career I was happy in my work I was working with malnourished women and children in rural areas of poor countries developing countries this was not enough because I began to see corruption in governments no matter how much our projects did for the local rural people and for the poor unless the government was committed to helping their own people, our efforts seemed to always be one step forward and one step back. So I realized that the, the spiritual nutrition in the world was so deficient that attracted me to taking up a spiritual calling. If I had been born 
20 years later, there might have been an opportunity to be a female rabbi, and I would have... It always attracted me, but there was no opportunity like that years ago. So oddly enough, I found myself crossing the boundary into another tradition to take up this spiritual calling. I call it a vocation. Like for some of us, vocation is to be a nurse or to be a doctor or to be a business person, so many kinds of things that you could be, or to be a mother. So when I took up this calling, for me, it was a, it was a lifetime project from the start. The teacher who gave me the precepts in Burma is a well-known meditation master. He's considered very fierce. But I think because he could see, and he had a, an amazing heart, and he could read your heart with his. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this. It can be very intimidating to come and sit in front of someone that you know knows what's in your mind in a good way. For, for your own, out of compassion. I asked him if I could take these precepts, the training as a nun, and he said, in your case, only if you do it for life. That was very stunning to me. I was 37 years old, and I was in the middle of a very fascinating, interesting, and in a humanitarian sense, beneficial profession. I, I was in the field helping starving people children being brought to me who were like literally little skeletons and we would get them into our feeding programs for many of them it was too late this calling that I had was very powerful so he told me to go and think about it and I did I was on an intensive meditation retreat and I thought about it one afternoon when he was giving a talk these ladies were sitting and listening, and I thought, great, I'm not going to have to tell him anything. So I tried to slip out innocuously, and he stopped me. He said, just wait. So I waited, and then he shoot all the ladies out and called me forward and asked me if I had made up my mind. I just said yes, but I hadn't. But I <laughs> What could I say? You know, the master calls you. And he said... So what did you decide? And I said, I'll do it. <laughs> Can you be ready in three days? Yes, Sayadaw. Then in three days, I had to present myself in front of the Burmese nuns. They sewed my robes very quickly. The robes were so tight on me, I could hardly sit down in them. And then they tried to shave my hair, my head. And first, I had, had a normal head of hair at that age. They were using a cutthroat razor. I was, I was terrified. They couldn't get my hair off. Oh, dear. Something's wrong. It's, it's a, really, I think, more the way that my mind would always go. The way that I was, I was raised in, this, in the shadow of this Holocaust. And so, very often coming from a place of fear and coming from lack of confidence and always feeling not good enough again here was this critical moment where 
I've made this life decision to become a nun and they can't shave my head because for some reason something's wrong. And I remember because I've been meditating a lot and using this Buddhist practice of mindfulness, so I was aware of my thoughts. I could see the negativity arise. There's something wrong. And immediately the wrongness was in me. And I caught it. And I, I said, no, there's nothing wrong. My heart is totally into this. I think there must be something wrong with the razor. <laughs> and sure enough, it wasn't sharp enough. They had to go and get another one. And then I was really scared. This was a brand new cutthroat. <laughs> the amount of gratitude that I have for those unsteady steps and all the clumsiness and awkwardness that I have lived through and worked with over the years and worked through that have brought me to the point where I can actually sit down in front of a group of strangers and speak in public is to me just proof of how much this journey, this practice works. Another small example that reminds me of letting go of fear is many years ago when I was still quite a young nun living in the monastery in England, the community was on retreat. The senior monk traditionally when we would st start the evening chanting on our lunar observance day, what interesting thing is that in Buddhism and Judaism we also follow the, the moon. So what, whatever the moon is doing is important. But it was a lunar observance day, so it's a powerful full moon night and the energy is very heightened. The senior monk turns to me and says, would you like to chant the introduction to the devas, the celestial beings, this way of bringing all the angelic forces to bear witness to our evening prayer service and meditation service. I froze, I absolutely froze. Now you know what it feels like when someone's playing a game, you're watching a game and the losing team is losing and your heart goes out to them. You know that feeling? I could feel the nuns leaning towards me with their hearts. And I started to chant this chant, which I knew by heart, but my whole body was shaking from head to toe. And my voice was shaking even worse. I was humiliated. I felt, why did he ask me? Why doesn't somebody stop me? Why don't I just stop? But I couldn't. You can't. You're supposed to. I thought it would get better, but it just got worse. <laughs> and every, I could feel everybody cringing <laughs> with a mixture of compassion and horror. <laughs> At the end of it, he turned to me and he said, I'll never ask you again. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> He had a lot of compassion. A few years later, I had gone to New Zealand and he was the abbot there. I was invited to do a year retreat in our monastery there. And I started by attending a 10-day retreat that he was leading. So we were all sitting in a row in the front, a few monks and me, one nun at the end. And he turned to me and he said, Sister, 
would you like to chant the introduction to the celestial beings? And I froze. And I thought, doesn't he remember? I chanted it, and I chanted it just fine. I realized, I don't know what it was, I don't know what it is, it's mysterious. Something had fallen away. Something had just fallen away, and I wasn't, I wasn't afraid. I was able to do it. That really surprised me. And it, it just continues to evolve like that. I sit in front of you today, having come back to this country from living on my own in a perfect setting for somebody that wants to be a hermit and stay away from the maddening crowd. There are two things that I've learned through studying a little bit about the mystical side of Judaism, which I, I never had access to as a young woman, the Kabbalah. The two principles that I learned are Ein Sof. Ein Sof being the principle of realization of the divinity within us and understanding that deeply, profoundly through our own experience. And the second principle is tikkun olam, which is the reparation, the restoration of the world. That doesn't mean just social service. I believe that traditionally in ancient times when people might have been closer or living in smaller communities where the rabbi had a lot of influence in the children's education and in family life, not like it is in society today where the world is so secularized and even the religious institutions are overshadowed by business, banks. The tallest buildings that we have in our cities worldwide are banks and big companies. I believe that in the ancient times, this tikkun olam, this principle of working to serve others, was about repairing and restoring ourselves spiritually so that we could understand our true nature, where we come from, our source, and return to it, or be able to learn the tools by which we can return to it. That's the meaning of Torah. Torah is, is that very exalted teaching, an instruction, a path, a way of helping us to find our way back. Now, even though I've been walking around looking like this, I've never really been far away from all that I learned as a child. It's been very precious to me. And my strong connection with my parents and my background in Hebrew. So I would often sit and contemplate some of the words that I had learned, including this word tikkun olam, repair of the world, realizing how similar the Buddhist map and the Kabbalah, how similar they were. This understanding of the breath and working with the breath in mindfulness meditation is ruach, the indwelling presence that we know in Judaism. In Buddhism, we, we focus on the body and the breath and paying close attention to the present moment leads us into that indwelling 
pure presence inside us, within us. Through that, we begin to find the real spirit of divinity or the real presence of divinity within us. That understanding then mysteriously takes us to an exalted sense of compassion for others. When you take a piece of bamboo and you cut it, you look into it, you see it's hollow and it's shaped a certain way and it feels a certain way, then you don't have to cut every single piece of bamboo in the world because you know bamboo. So if you study your own heart and you know your own heart and you know it well, then you can know the human heart, every human heart. You know humanity. You know what it is to be a human being because you have studied and investigated and fathomed profoundly your own heart. And you know that what you discover inside, within, is universal. It's not personal. Yes, I had to study all the stuff that I'd been holding that I had carried with me throughout my life from my childhood fighting those demons under my bed those monsters of the Holocaust who were trying to get me that I had resurrected as part of my psyche they were constantly tyrannizing my life and they were living within me I had to exercise them not by trying to get rid of them psychologically but just by being with that pure indwelling breath, pure presence in my heart. Moment by moment, month by month, year by year, facing my inner demons, facing the, the thoughts, the memories, the projections, the distortions, the misunderstanding, the trepidation, the trembling that always was coming from within. No matter what happens on the outside, no one I discovered in the solitude of my practice, no one could help me to heal from that burden. I couldn't blame any condition on the outside. It was all coming from within. The transformation happens by being with it, by allowing it, by welcoming it, by seeing those dark forces as friends, as teachers, as something I could learn from. And so I learned how they begin, how they operate, how they take over the mind, and how they control us. And it's only by learning how that process works that we can let it go. Cutting the bamboo, cutting into the heart, cutting, like with that razor cutting the fear and examining it not running away from it just studying it in the furnace in the crucible of my own heart and staying present for that those painful moments which sometimes could feel like torture in me began to grow a fearlessness that I knew it was not enough to keep for myself doesn't mean that I'm not afraid but I'm not afraid of my fear 
does that kind of understanding we can really be compassionate we become friends to ourselves then it's time to go back to the world and it was no longer enough for me to sit in that beautiful private and very peaceful place near the beach wonderful mountains it's probably a bit like what you experience here i realized that i would have to give all that up another going forth another going into the unknown i felt this calling again that i had to go back and try to share this map of the journey with others in the same way that i had learned it that's how i came here it's very surprising to me how i got fished back out just someone threw the fishing line and reeled me in so that if there is a chance to make reparation in the heart if any of you look at your lives examine your lives and feel that there's some unresolved pain some lack of reconciliation some lack of forgiveness about anything the past the present yourself another person and you find yourself blaming don't give way to that blaming is the easy way to avoid the pain we think that we're getting some control over it by blaming or by suffering with it over and over again and failing to let it go and put it down and see it for what it really is it's not permanent but we make we make these pains and these burdens permanent and solid and we become their slaves and let them control us because of this lack of willingness to sit down with them and say i know you and i'm not going to let you control me anymore putting down the blame and sitting still in the silence of the darkness of our heart we can bring light have any of you heard of victor frankl mm-hmm. wonderful inspirational being who lived through the holocaust with tremendous light from the concentration camps he never lost the light he had the the power to endure and he wrote in his book what is to give light must endure burning if we want to be like radiant lights rely on your own solar power to be able to bring repair and real healing we can never heal our bodies but we can heal our hearts and bring peace to ourselves if we can have the courage to sit down in the middle of whatever is tormenting us and allow it to begin and end just like we allow the breath to begin and end to sit in the middle means to sit where it burns and to endure that burning we have to become fire we think that water will rescue us but it's actually the fire that is our rescue it's a paradox that burning 
is a very powerful journey, very difficult to do it without friends, spiritual friends, without the care and love and guidance of those who are walking that same path. The Buddha said that spiritual friendship is not 50% of the path, it's 100% of the path. Maybe it's important to remember not to try to do this alone. You know what I discovered when I was alone? Everybody was there with me. All the people that I didn't like especially. <laughs> I couldn't get rid of them. I had to sit there in the middle of my heart and burn with the dislike and find the origin of my hatred Somebody told me recently, talking about the Holocaust, and how difficult it is to forgive when you've suffered trauma, or your parents have suffered trauma and you carry their pain. But really the forgiveness begins within us, even if you say, I don't hate anyone. But we hate, we have hatred within us. And the hatred is our pain, we hate the pain that we carry, we hate, we look at it as separate from ourselves. But it's not separate. We've identified with it. That's what we believe we are. But we're not. We're actually the light, not the darkness. The hatred is a mask that we wear to cover up that light. We're more afraid, not of our fear, but of our power, of our courage, of the light that we carry. That light is the light of holiness. It's our godliness. Whether you call it God or godliness or perfected wisdom or perfect awakening or enlightenment, that's what each of us carries. The reason we're so frightened of it, as we discover it, as we allow it to be revealed in the silence of our hearts, it bears a huge responsibility with it. It means that we have to let go of our selfishness. Instead of cherishing ourselves and believing only in what we want and caring only for what we need, we have to let that go and more and more come to the point of selflessness not cherishing ourself, ourselves, but cherishing others. That's where compassion really begins. When you start to be so concerned about the pain and suffering of other people that you are willing to step forward and put your head on the chopping block. No matter what happens, you're going to try to do what needs to be done. Even if you have no idea how it's going to happen. You're just some little brown nun in the corner of the world with a shaved head and you have this call to go out and serve. And do you know what happens when that comes? You're willing to step forward and you're giving light in your heart, space to shine more and more. Then the universe responds it has to. It has to. It's almost like light attracts more light. 
and things begin to happen. It all starts with faith and understanding, seeing within ourselves that light and knowing that it exists in everyone. And that you feel like you want to be a God wrestler. A God wrestler is the real meaning of the word Yisrael. Yisra is from the word to wrestle, and El is the word for God. To be a God wrestler, we have to struggle with all the dark forces in us until we bring forth the light. If all of us understand this principle, then we can face our fear and work together to bring greater peace and compassion in this world, having understood where it begins. It begins in each of us. The word for God, which is unpronounceable in Hebrew, is translated as was, is, and will be. It's the principle of timelessness. And the whole secret of the truth being revealed within us through this ability to be present, to be purely present, happens by letting go of the past and letting go of the future completely. It's a complete renunciation, standing empty in front of our own holiness. And when we're empty, what happens? We're empty of fear, we're empty of anger, we're empty of greed, we're empty of hatred, we're empty of godlessness. And what rushes in is holiness. That's what fills that emptiness. So instead of avoiding pain, go towards it to encounter that void. Do not avoid go towards the void and in that emptiness of the present moment we discover Godness. I'm just drawing similarities out because they are so striking having practiced for so many years on this path and finding that it just brings to life the roots of my own Judaism I feel incredible joy I've also discovered that meditating with my Christian brothers and sisters when I worked in Africa many years ago I used to live next door to a mosque and I used to hear the call to prayer Allah Akbar every morning when I used to wake up I would meditate to that I had so many streams influencing my heart I tie all these threads together and I hold them here I do feel like a boundary crosser, but I don't feel that there are any boundaries left, really. There's just so much oneness, so much that we share. We just need to wake up to that. Maybe you'd like to ask some questions. So I'll stop here and turn it over to you. Oh, this is a wonderful question. 
Many people refrain from criminal activities because of possible punishment. Won't unconditional forgiveness result in much more crime and total chaos? Absolutely not. We can forgive the person, but they still have to be morally responsible for what they do. It's not about not punishing. Certainly, to forgive even a terrible criminal. Last night I was in the... Where was I last night? In the teacher's... What is it? Vancouver Vancouver School Board. Thank you. Yes, I'm in Vancouver. (laughs) One of the people attending the talk reported that her colleague in Fredericton had just been murdered. He and his daughter were shot. He died and the murderer killed himself on a college campus. Now that's very, very tragic and devastatingly violent act against innocent people. You may forgive, we have to forgive that man. He must have acted out of tremendous suffering and complete ignorance that he will have to suffer the punishment for his crime. But to forgive means that there's some sense of, there's some compassion there, some understanding that this is a human being who is deeply disturbed to commit such an atrocity, that he would have to be morally responsible. You don't wipe that out just because you forgive. In our code of ethics, we always forgive each other. We have a system of voluntarily confessing and acknowledging our errors. It's interesting, when you're in the robes, how much conscience plays a role. It's very difficult to receive alms food, to receive support from people who are spontaneously giving to you because they trust you, they believe in what you're doing, and face them every day if you're not keeping the rules. It's an honor system. We have a lot of freedom in the monastery. Nothing's locked and you could sneak into the kitchen if you wanted at night. (laughs) But nobody does. People do make mistakes, but the most important principle of our system is that there's always forgiveness. And if you don't forgive, then that's an offense. So there's a built-in forgiveness and a built-in reciprocity of kindness. In society, we hope that if someone has committed even heinous offenses, we don't electrocute them. Capital punishment, according to this way of thinking, would be unacceptable. And the criminal would have to, if their lifetime wasn't long enough for them to make reparation for the evil that they had perpetrated, then we have this understanding of karma that they're going to get it (laughs) one day. It's just going to happen. Look at the law of cause and effect, the way it operates on your mind. If you have a hateful thought, what will that lead to? A bad feeling in your heart. You might get angry at someone or say something that you would regret. That's cause-effect. But if you promote and cultivate goodness in your heart and forgiveness, 
that if that person were to walk into the room, he might be able to put down the burden of hatred or resentment or anger or that you feel towards them even a little bit just by holding that good thought in your mind what I'm talking about is a gradual process it doesn't happen overnight it takes fanatical patience and radical faith and sometimes you're just on fire and you're just going to burn, burn up you die but the most important thing is that we die to our anger we die to our grief we don't kill our goodness we save goodness we save the light that's there within us and we let the anger die we let the rage die down it will eventually we let the hopelessness the despair slowly just dissolve because we don't feed it do you know the story of the elder who says that he's got two dogs circling in his mind all the time one of them is a good dog a kind dog and the other one is an angry dog a wicked dog and people ask him which one wins and he says the one that I feed the most how do I verbally respond to people two in particular in brackets <laughs> who say I'm bored I'm lonely no friends I have a terrible life in the way of understanding the self little me this little self in here we identify with collected conditions of mind and body as being what we are who we are this little self that's identified with our suffering our situation our past a name a family history uh, religious persuasion so many things I'm ugly, I'm beautiful, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm weak, I'm strong, I'm afraid, I'm brave. All those thoughts, they're just thoughts. To study our thoughts is to understand ourselves very well, that we are not our thoughts. So if someone says, I'm bored, that comes from a lack of understanding of who are we this I that we believe in this ego doesn't exist it's not something that's easy to understand intellectually but in the silence of a meditative heart little by little we can get a glimpse when we stand in front of the void and have the courage to be with the pain and burn in the middle of it sit in that temple feel whatever we're feeling feel the pain rising and ceasing and study it knowing it and welcoming it accepting it just watching what it does it disappears eventually even for a moment it will leave us standing in front of that empty pure presence where we begin to discover we're like that hollow bamboo this might be frightening 
But it's, it really is the understanding that helps us go to a place of fearlessness. It's very liberating. There's no self there that's suffering. So who's bored? This I that we believe in doesn't actually exist. What there is, is pure consciousness. The understanding of pure consciousness and our ability to fathom it at deeper and deeper levels eventually brings us to this principle of Ein Sof, the infinite. It's the realization of that divinity in us, which cannot be destroyed, it never gets bored. It's beyond all conditions. It cannot be understood through conceptual knowledge, but only through our deep, heart, God-wrestling intuition, where we call on that divinity to reveal itself to us. We have to be so pure, so empty of greed, of anger, of rage, of hurt, of worry, and of self-concern selfishness I'm bored, I'm lonely, I have no friends I have a terrible life woe is me this is all ignorance speaking someone who is awake and aware would be saying I'm so blessed I'm alive I can sit I can walk, I have friends I have a mind I have a life I have parents I'm a human being living in a peaceful country. I can vote. At this very moment, there is a new president <laughs> who has no self. <laughs> but maybe he's got a bit of leadership. <laughs> to know that there is a path. This is Torah. It means that there is an instruction. There is a spiritual teaching that gives us a map in to help us understand how we can reveal this perfect beingness, timelessness. Now I had mentioned that the word in Hebrew for this timelessness, the was, is, and will be of God, Godness, coincides with the name of the Buddha. The Buddha really means the awakened one. Bhutto is awakened wisdom. All of us have that potential. The Buddha was a, a human being, just like any of us. He was born, he got old, he got sick, and he died. But he was fully awakened to this truth, which is beyond any identification with self or any attachment to this self-view, or self as a, a solid entity in this world. When he realized enlightenment, he met someone walking down the road. This man saw that he was such a radiant being. He said, who are you? And the Buddha said, I am the Tathagata. The Tathagata is a Pali word which means, I am the such gone forth one. That quality of suchness or beingness beyond time. A good way to describe it is was, is, and will be. It's timeless, eternal, indestructible, unshakable, undefeatable, inexhaustible, sublime, perfectly purified, perfectly awakened. The bodhicitta, the bodhisattva, 
the one who has perfected compassion for all beings and is able to repair and restore the world. This is so lovely to, for us to contemplate together two such seemingly divergent teachings and yet they're saying the same things. The Buddha taught that we too can realize that by following the teaching, following this Torah, but he used different words, the Dharma, following the teaching, which is the law. It's a primordial law, an exalted law that has always existed. And this Dharmic teaching gives us a map to take that journey in. And the map begins with going to a sacred space, a little quiet space, a garden, a room where it's quiet, sitting down, stopping all our activity, like on the Sabbath day. So again, the similarity is Lashavit. Sabbath means to sit down. So when we practice meditation, what do we do? We sit, we stop, we rest the heart. And we sit and observe and study the heart in the silence of an evening, of a morning. The Buddha is this enlightened potentiality that we all have. The Dharma, the law, and the Sangha are the awake practitioners, or all of us here who want to awaken to our true nature, who are God wrestlers. We want to do that struggle so we can discover our true nature within us. The, the similarities keep stunning me over and over again. Question, do you find any conflicts or at least major differences between your Theravadan training and your Mahayana ordination? Only opinions. <laughs> Just like there are so many opinions between Jews and Buddhists, but when it gets down to the real mystical practice, the same landscape of the heart, there's a different emphasis in the Mahayana tradition. The emphasis is on the repair of the world, on perfecting compassion. That may not be articulated in the same way in the Theravada tradition, but the teachers that we have give us an example. Like the Buddha worked tirelessly for 45 years of his life to teach others out of compassion. He was called the Bodhisattva, one who selflessly works for the salvation of others. How did you come by the English name of Mary? Well, Mary was a Jewess. And my grandmother, who perished in the war, her name was Mary. And my brother was named Joseph after a grandfather who perished in the war. So we were an odd a couple of kids, Joseph and Mary, and I always got a kick out of it. <laughs> Do you know the funniest thing? I have to tell you this story. Remember I told you about the Sayadaw, the great master who ordained me in Burma? He gave me this name. In the Buddhist tradition, the names are chosen according to the day of the week that you were born. So certain letters in the Pali language are assigned to each day. 
and I was born on a Thursday. There were two letters that my name could begin with. One was a P sound, and the other was a M sound. Because my name had been Mary, I was hoping that he would choose a Pali name that began with an M. I didn't dare say a word. Whatever name he gave me, that was going to be just perfect. So he gave me a name that started with a P sound. And when I heard it, I must have winced. I don't know. He knew my heart. He, he right away said, what's the matter? You don't like it? I was so mortified. Oh, no, it's perfect. Then I'd taken the preset not to lie. But I was trying to rationalize in my mind that really this was going to be perfect. I was going to straighten out my ignorant mind and make this sound so perfect for the rest of my life. You just let go, it doesn't matter. Then the next day in the room where he gave sermons to those of us that were on retreat, the sermon was finished and then we had to silently walk back and suddenly he said to me, come here. And I thought, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm no good, I'm not doing it right. And he said, I'm changing your name. Your name is going to be Meda Nandi. And as soon as he said it, I loved it. Now, there are two things here. One of them was, it started with M. And then the meaning was very beautiful. He said, sharp wisdom. Not just wisdom, sharp discernment. It also means love of wisdom. The interesting thing was when I wrote to my parents to tell them my new name, I noticed in Yiddish, my parents used to always call me Medala. Medala means little girl. It's an affectionate way of referring to your daughter. So I was always Medala or Meda. And there it was, holy language. He was calling me Meda. It was really phenomenal how lovely it was to get that name, and how wise a teacher. Let's see. Is the transformation to fearlessness one way? Absolutely. However, that doesn't mean that you don't tremble, but you're not afraid of the fear anymore. And then it keeps growing and growing, so you can get less trembly. But the physical trembling is just that's physiological with me. Were there any other questions tonight? More. To find one's depth of Jewishness following a Buddhist meditation path can be helpful, but can you find your depth of Jewishness in a non-mystical traditional synagogue? If you follow the Torah in the primordial sense, in the mystical sense, in the Kabbalistic sense, Sure. Why not? If you want to be Yehudi, to give thanks, to stand with thanksgiving in front of the present moment and bless it and say, I'm not bored. I have a beautiful life. Whatever happens to me is a blessing. My suffering is a teacher. My suffering will lead me 
to the place of non-suffering, if I can sit with it and make friends with it, understand it, and realize who I really am, and die to all the falseness that I carry, to all the dead things that I carry. We are still tyrannized by the war and by atrocity, not because it's happening, but because we carry it in our hearts. We just don't put it down. Until you let go of that, you can never receive the gift. You can't have them at the same time. Therefore, for me, the shaving of the head and wearing of the robe is symbolic of that level of renunciation. Every time I wake up in the morning and look at my robes, I'm following in the footsteps of all those who have gone before me and realized this teaching to its fullest. They remind me to stand empty in the present moment, to renounce all the dross, all the evil, all the horror, all the fear, all the terror, all the disappointment, all the trembling, and go forth. Cross the territory, cross over. Be a real Ivri, Ivriya in a female form, is one who crosses all the boundaries until we, we have boundless capacity for compassion and love, unconditional. It is Remembrance Day coming up on November 11th. We feel remembrance is very important. What would a Remembrance Day look like when you live in the present moment with no past or future? You honor. You honor your parents, your ancestors. You remember them. Standing in the present moment doesn't mean you just have amnesia, you forget everything. It means you forget the things that are dead in terms of being obstacles to what is pure, to our liberation, to our freedom. It's to remember the goodness that has been given to us and to give thanks to our ancestors, to our parents, for all that they went through and all the sacrifice they made so that we could be here tonight seeking, trying to understand, trying to be, to be that divinity, to realize the truth within us. So Remembrance Day is to remember and honor those who sacrificed their lives to protect their country. It's very important. It's very important to honor the generations continually and never forget. But the way that we remember is very important. It's remembering with a sense of blessing and thanksgiving. I think of my parents as my first teachers. To me, they're heroes what they were able to live through, and how they were able to come to reconciliation in their lives. My father was meditating for the last 13 years of his life. And he used to tell me, maybe next life I'll be a Buddhist monk. <laughs> yes. Barack Obama won. He did. That's such good news. That's so wonderful. Oh, that is so wonderful. Can, can you share with us about the bhikkhuni ordination? 
It's almost nine o'clock. The Bikuni ordination will take a long time. Maybe next year. Actually, I have to tell you one thing, if you, if you have the patience to listen. I haven't told this story in Vancouver yet. It was a grueling process because, first of all, I was the only Westerner amid 220 Taiwanese, well, Chinese from different parts of Asia, Chinese, a few Japanese, I think, or Indonesian, Malaysian. And I didn't understand any Chinese, but I had to learn a few things very fast. It was grueling physically, mentally. At every level, I had to let go of my identity to an extent that left me trembling from head to foot. It was the real burning. I thought that I'd been tested for 20 years, and there I was being tested all over again. Finally, I made it to the very last test, which was you go through so many purifications in this large group. At the end, one of the ends, you always think the mountain is there and you're at the top and there's another cliff ahead that you didn't see before. There were 21 masters, 11 men, great elders in the robe, and 10 women elders in the robe. And in, in the Buddhist tradition in which I've been trained for many years, we were the first generation of nuns. We didn't really have elders in their 70s and 80s who'd been in the robe. For me, to be in the presence of these women who had for over a thousand years in China, and then that lineage had been carried from the Sri Lankan tradition to Taiwan. So going back 2,000, more than 2,500 years, nuns, generations of women practicing this way of training and passing the light on. And suddenly it was conferred on me. I felt so deeply humbled when I had to do the chanting which I had learned, sitting and shouting these words at me, these nuns that were trying to help me get it because it just wouldn't go in. I couldn't get the tones. I couldn't... They would have to repeat it over and over. And they were so patient with me until I got it so that I could get up there and chant with the others. You had to be precise. Then the masters, all 21 of them, chanted for us. And when they started chanting, my body became absolutely still. It was really quite an amazing moment because I'm such a shaker. <laughs> and I, I saw a couple of the nuns that you, you're sitting in front of them. They're all around you and you're kneeling with your hands like this. Kneeling in front of this is very, very daunting, I'll tell you. I think everyone was very nervous, but I just manifested it more. I was much older than the other nuns, except there was one nun in my group who's 75. She was a great inspiration to me. A couple of these older nuns were watching me with almost horror before while I was chanting and shaking. I think they, they were worried, but I, I made it. And then their chanting brought me to absolute stillness and I felt very, very blessed. 
I left that room. That was called ascending the altar. So it's that you actually get up on the shrine. They put you on the shrine as if you become a candle. And then then you get sent out into the world. That's what the Bodhisattva vow. Profound. I just wanted to read you a poem that I wrote on September 11th. Though the world around us is crumbling in sorrow, though we may face danger, defeat, decrepitude, death, may we be brave and unrelenting. May we hold our candle to compassion and peace in the darkness of night. May our lives be the indestructible, inexhaustible, imminent, living flame of love in this world. As the fragile sand dollars and shells that survive the tempests and torrents of the sea, let us come ashore bringing great light to all. Let us be the harbingers of peace. So I offer that for your reflection tonight. Thank you for coming. Bless you all. Maybe I could chant a little um, a little prayer for you. Do you want Hebrew or Pali? Pali? Both. Okay, I'll start with the Hebrew. At the same time. At the same time. The meaning of this chant is that the truth within us is ungraspable by giving this name Hoda or Yehuda, the Yehudi. It's about thanksgiving and it's also about that which was, is and will be. It's the eternal, eternal flame in us. So that is our redemption. It is the great quality of compassion, the unconditional compassion in this world and unconditional love. And the, the person who cries out to that principle receives the help, the support to survive, to flower, to be redeemed. Avinu malkeinu Chaneinu vraneinu Avinu malkeinu Chaneinu vraneinu Ki ein banu maasim blessing in Pali. These words mean basically that the triple gem is vast and abundant in this world. These three jewels, 
We never need fear that it runs out, that there's not enough for me. There's always enough mercy, compassion, compassionate wisdom, and the light that will reveal the way out of the darkness for us. Yang kim chi ratanang luke We jati we widang kuturatanang Buddha samang Nati tasamasuti Bawantu te Yang kin chi ratanang luke We jati we widang puturatanang tamasamang Nati tasamasuti bawantu te Yang kin chi ratanang luke We jati we widang puturatanang sangasamang Nati tasamasuti bawantu te